one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. An Erio's original. I was born with a special gift. The ability to mentally transform any situation into the worst case scenario in my own brain. My therapist calls my gift catastrophizing. And that's why I'm uniquely qualified to scrutinize and analyze history's greatest disasters and find out who's to blame. They say history repeats itself. Not on my watch. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and I am The Alarmist. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into The Alarmist, a comedy podcast where we talk about history's greatest tragedies and figure out who's to blame. Today we're discussing the Attica Prison Uprising. Here's what you need to know. Chaos, prisoners, guards, task force, violence. No, this isn't an episode of television. We're, we're taking a deep dive into the actual event of the Attica Prison Uprising. While it feels a bit like a Hollywood action thriller, this true-life event highlights the very real systemic issues of the prison system. During the late 1960s and early 1970s, a prisoner's rights movement emerged across the U.S. The Attica Prison Uprising, also known as the Attica Prison Rebellion, the Attica Riot, or the Attica Prison Massacre, took place near Buffalo in Attica, New York, and began on September 9, 1971. That morning, after an altercation between a guard and a prisoner, 
a small group of inmates overpowered guards and the uprising began. By noon, correctional officers and police controlled about half the prison and its inmates, while over 1,200 of Attica's inmates controlled the other half. In the initial chaos, several guards and prisoners were injured. One correctional officer later died from his injuries. This prompted the inmates to establish a group of leaders to restore order within the prison. Once the inmates secured their sections of the prison, they began organizing and electing leaders to represent them in negotiations. They requested a team of outside observers who were experts in prison conditions and appointed inmates to serve as medics and security to keep both hostages and the observer committee safe. Then, they began to draft a list of demands for officials to meet before they surrendered. Their basic demand? To be treated as human beings. This list included items such as better education, non-rancid food, fair visitation rights, improved medical treatment and sanitation, less male censorship, more religious freedom, fair disciplinary and parole process, and an end to brutality from guards. Inmates were limited to one shower per week and only one toilet paper roll a month. Asking for more meant a beatdown. Prisoner Commissioner Russell Oswald very quickly agreed to 28 of the 30 demands. However, the one non-negotiable demand that everything hinged on was their request for amnesty. The Attica inmates were asking for amnesty not for the crimes that brought them to prison, but for crimes related to the uprising, such as destroying property and taking prisoners. However, after four long days of back-and-forth negotiations, on September 13th, New York Governor Nelson A. Rockefeller, who refused to visit the prison during the takeover, broke off negotiations and ordered armed state troopers to raid the prison by force. At 8.25 a.m. on Monday, September 13, 1971, Oswald gave the inmates an ultimatum, demanding that they release hostages and accept an offer settlement within the hour. The inmates rejected his offer, since it appeared as though Rockefeller remained opposed to their demands. As a result, helicopters tear-gassed the yard. Troopers shot more than 2,000 rounds, hitting 128 men and killing 39. 29 prisoners and 10 guards. To this day, the Attica prison riot retains the highest number of fatalities in the history of United States prison uprisings. Fun Facts, a.k.a. Death Stats. At the time, there were over 2,200 prisoners locked up in a facility built to accommodate 1,600. Nearly 1,300 prisoners took over the Attica Correctional Facility in upstate New York to protest years of mistreatment. 54% of prisoners involved in the riot were black and 9% identified as Puerto Rican. 40% of the prisoners were under the age of 30. Only one out of the 398 correctional officers was Latino, and all of the prison administrators were white. It cost $8 million to run Attica Prison in the fiscal year. In 1971 to 1972, that amounted to about $8,000 per prisoner. Most of this money, about 62%, 
was spent on correctional officers' salaries. Inmates at Attica spent 14 to 16 hours a day in their 6-by-9-foot cells. 62 prisoners were charged in 42 indictments, with 1,289 separate counts. Only one state trooper was charged. 39 people died in the riot. 29 of them were prisoners and 10 were hostages. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. Fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. And our very special guest today is our friend Sean Conway. Hi, Sean. Hi, guys. Now, before we started, I asked you if there was anything you wanted to plug, and you said a your local art auction. Yes. I want to plug um, the 59th annual Garrison Art <laughs> Center Plain Air Auction which will be happening on May 13th. Wow. And in, 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 are we allowed to say where? <laughs> I, I prefer Find not it to if you can. Okay, okay. <laughs> no, it'll be happening at the Garrison Art Center in Garrison, New York, which is my uh, nonprofit art center where I am a pottery student. Mm. Oh, well, that's just wonderful. I now, love that you said this is kind of local, but I just love the idea of that. Like maybe there's just like one or two Garrison alarmists who are like, finally, something I get to do. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I mean, they'll if they don't know me, they really should. So. <laughs> and if Watch you out. and if you use code alarmist on one of your pot on one of your pots, you'll give them what if kind somebody, of discount? It, yeah, if somebody <laughs> yeah. emails me, I'm not going to tell you my email address, but if they email me with the code alarmist, I'll mail them a vase. Wow. Wow. <laughs> not free. Not yeah. free. I mean, you if they, they charge him something. get his email, that means they've done some work, right? Yes. Yeah. You so kind of it. like deserve it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't. Sure. Yeah. yeah. It's the least I could do. Such oh, a generous guest. Thank you so much nice from, from the Alarmy. I thank you. Um, Sean, yes. we'd like to start off the show by asking our guests, what is something that's recently alarming you? What's something that's keeping you up at night? Well, this is, um, you know, this week we've had our first I, on the East Coast, we've had our first sort of 70 degree and above days of the season, which means mm. we're coming into air conditioner in tall building season. And I am always afraid of it falling on my head. Mm. But yes. luckily, <laughs> because we have a winter here, I can I put that um, fear to rest for, you know, half of the year. But mm -hmm. I met a small child two weeks ago who went to the uh, New York uh, Natural History Museum and stood under the big whale. I said, are you afraid of it falling on your head? She said, no. And mm. I said, I am. And now, so what I'm really alarmed by is my perpetuating mm. intergenerational trauma of me mm. trying to teach children to be afraid of what I'm afraid of. <laughs> you know, Sean, uh, you were actually, you and our other good friend, Adam Lustig, were the two people who introduced that fear to me, mm -hmm. which I was actually grateful for mm -hmm. at the time, because it was a fear that I had not had or it was it was something i was not alarmed about at the time and now i forever will be high alert high alert all the time yeah <laughs> and i'm trying to figure out how to transition okay yes so you mentioned that and, and i know you like to you know you're very involved in your local community and you actually are from upstate new york i am and i, I i'm realizing i have no idea how close attica is from 
Albany? Uh, geographically, it is not that close. It's on the west side of New York, and Albany is on the east side of okay. New York. New York is um, a huge state. <laughs> New York is a, it's a suspiciously large state. You don't really mm -hmm. think about how big it is. Um, but, you know, the, the New York sort of prison system was designed so that a lot of these uh, prisons and, and correctional facilities were in these sort of rural areas mm -hmm. outside of the more major metropolitan areas. So even where we live, which is in the Hudson Valley, um, there are a couple of prisons sort of in our community where people who uh, live in our community would work. And you were recently asked to help uh, give your input in, in the prison reform? Yeah. So or after, um, so in New York State, in sort of the end of 2020, the previous governor uh, put out an executive uh, order that all municipalities with police departments would create a task force to review their policies and get input from community stakeholders about um, mostly sort of issues pertaining to training and equity and equality. And so I was a committee chair or co-chair rather for the LGBTQIA subcommittee of the Putnam County Sheriff's Department um, review panel. Wow. Um, and then I did something similar recently for the village that I live in has a very small department. And I did something similar for our village department um, uh, just recently, just ended a couple of months ago. But our sheriff's department also operates our county jail. So it was about policing mm. and it was also a little bit about corrections. But um, and and my responsibilities were as it pertained to um you know just issues regarding gender and gender expression i'm i'm so impressed start local obviously start local right sure. yeah huge fan huge yeah. fan of the local scene <laughs> Love it. um and i'm just so impressed that we had to get you on the podcast to get to get this information out of you i had no idea yeah you know i don't lead with it it doesn't really <laughs> come up at cocktail parties um but it is just one of the one of the facets of the crystal of my life <laughs> well you know attica uh the the uprising is uh 71. So some things have changed since uh, 1971, but also some things have not changed. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and it's shocking how few things really had changed. And I was mm -hmm. I, I, in, uh, you know, in preparation for talking to you guys, I was looking through the demands that some of the prisoners put together. And um, of the whatever it was, 28 or 29 points, fully half of them were things that came up two years ago in Putnam County talking wow. about how our um, sheriff's department, and this isn't, I, let me preface this by saying, this isn't unique to where I live in New York. I mean, this is these are issues that have been ignored for generations and generations. Um, so it's, yeah, some things have changed and a lot of things have mm. uh, stayed the same and, and things probably have also gotten worse. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a quote. I wanted to start with a quote from uh, one of the members uh, of the negotiating team. This was 21-year-old Elliot James. And uh, 
they 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 sh- during you know they shared a pre- a statement with the press saying and it, and it's one of the famous quotes from this uh, event we are men we are not beasts we do not intend to be beaten or driven as such the entire po- prison populace that means each and every one of us here have set forth to change forever the ruthless brutalization and disregard for the lives of the prisoners here and throughout the united states what has happened here is but the sound before the fury of those who are oppressed we will not compromise on any terms except those terms that are agreeable to us we've called upon all the con- conscientious citizens of america to assist us in putting an end to the situation that threatens the lives of not only us, but each and every one of you as well. So it really did feel like they were making very reasonable requests, you know? Yeah. Uh, and and I, I, I was curious, like, what, who, who were the inmates that were in Attica prison at the time? You know, there, there, were, there are other maximum security prisons in the area. And uh, including Attica, they housed men with short sentences, as well as men who were imprisoned for life. So it was a mixture. Mm-hmm. More than half of the people in Attica in 1971 were serving sentences of, of seven years or less. So shorter sentences. Mm-hmm. Only 62% had been convicted of violent crimes. Mm. This is a time where men uh, had been persuaded, uh, those who had been um, arrested um, and, and charged with, with crimes were persuaded that the only way of escaping a long jail sentence would be to accept plea bargains for shorter sentences, even if, if they in some cases denied committing the crime. Sure. So... It's a mixture. The, 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 and not to say that there weren't violent uh, criminals as well in Attica. Actually, mm-hmm. one of the, the ones that comes to mind is uh, we recently covered the Kitty uh, Genovese mm-hmm. murder. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the murderer had been in Attica. I, I don't know if he was involved in the, in the, in the uprising, um, but he was definitely there during the time. Hmm. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Very uh, violent offenders, as well as um, people there who were just uh, who knows, who knows if they were falsely imprisoned. Mm. Well, I also think it's you know just to clarify the difference between sort of a jail and a prison is a prison is for people, as you said, who have been convicted and are serving sentences regardless of that length. A jail is where people are held usually prior to their trial. So when you're talking about just the sphere of violence and mistreatment in corrections, there are people who are serving their sentences who have been convicted, regardless of that length. There's also a whole population of people who are in jail, having been accused of a crime, who are waiting trial, who also can be subject to violence and abuses. And these are people who are in our American system innocent until proven guilty. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think there's this um, mentality of, uh, or maybe a lack of perspective, you know, in uh, America, we all agree that prison, you know, prisons are meant to sort of rehabilitate offenders so that they can be welcomed back into society. 
And but the other sort of side of that perception is feeling like people need to be punished for their actions, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily a um, generous way of looking at these facilities. Um, mm-hmm. Seems like the latter gets the more focus than the former. <clears throat> well, and I practice and I think that that can be, um, you know, it's the perspective of the to, to Rebecca's point. I mean, if you're convincing people to take lower sentences by pleading guilty to different charges, I mean, you're really removing rehabilitation from the whole equation because you're not w- w- then what you're basically getting into is just degrees of punishment right. that mm-hmm. we can all agree are appropriate for this thing that we are accusing you of right. doing that right. you might not have actually done or done under circumstances that weren't um, explained to a jury. Mm-hmm. I want to point out real quick is that here at The Alarmist, we have gotten things wrong uh, in the sense that we call it our alarmist jail when it really should be a prison. Mm. But we're just sticking to it. For yeah. <laughs> or it could be an alarmist rehabilitation center. Yeah, that's I would love, that's, that's what it is. Yeah. That is what it is. Everybody has the opportunity yeah. for redemption. Yeah. <laughs> now, we use jail in a general sense, I yeah. guess. Now, let's jump in. We have to put things up on the board. Vacation I, getaway, maybe. Alarmist vacation okay. getaway. Mm. I don't know Alarmist more than one day spa. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or small day spot. <laughs> um, first up, uh, I want to put up uh, general prison conditions. And this is from Carlos Roach, uh, an Attica inmate. They say the rebellion started because of a fight between two guys on the football field the night before in A Block. That's what they said. But it was the years and years of humiliation, you know, mental and physical abuse. It, it reached a head and just exploded. They claim that it was planned. The administration claims that it was planned. And this is this and that and, and the other. That's a lie. It was spontaneous, you know, and that's how it happened. The uprising occurred within a larger context of poor prison conditions and systemic racial discrimination. Historian Howard Zinn wrote of the conditions in Attica prior to the uprising, quote, prisoners spent 14 to 16 hours a day in their cells. Their mail was read, their reading material restricted, their visits from families conducted through a mesh screen, their medical care disgraceful, their parole system inequitable, racism everywhere, overcrowding contributed to the poor conditions, as in recent years, the prison's population had increased from the 1,200 prisoners for which it was designed to 2,243. So that's a thousand. I know, almost double. People over max capacity. I mean, I am, I've set my home max capacity to like four. <laughs> yeah, we feel crowded. If we don't like to have dinner parties with more than two, with more than one other couple. Yeah, yeah. I refuse to go to dinner at a restaurant with more than six people. Same reason. <laughs> Too, Too complicated. You can't because yeah. you can't keep your eyes on all people no, at one time. No, you know, right. no, no. Right. I mean, this should is... we put too crowded up on the board? We can. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But this is, and, and, you know, I heard things about how the, okay, so many of the prisoners were Puerto Rican, and some of them didn't speak Sp- English. So m- much of their mail was in Spanish. And therefore, they would just toss anything that was in Spanish, it wouldn't get through. And you also weren't allowed to uh, send mail that was not in English. So if you were a Spanish speaker, you had to go to uh a prisoner who spoke English to try and get them to translate what you were saying. You know, it's this whole thing of like, um, that kind of stuff beats you down mm-hmm. day after day. And um, I, and I also- sorry, on the, on the issue of the sort of language justice issue, you know, it was like 10% of the population of the jail was Puerto Rican and we're going to, Obviously, there are Puerto Ricans who speak English, and there are Puerto Ricans who don't of speak course. English. And there are plenty of Me other being languages. One of them. <laughs> there are plenty of other languages that are spoken. But one, uh, again, in the list of demands, was speaking specifically about access for Spanish-speaking prisoners and sort of monolingual uh, prisoners. The doctors couldn't speak Spanish, so mm. they would get misdiagnosed and they would get poor care. To your point, anything that arrived in Spanish would be thrown out Toss. because they couldn't censor it. And there was also rules against sharing mail um, with other prisoners. So even if you spoke English but couldn't read English and you get a letter from your lawyer, there's no resources to help you understand what they're saying. They wanted to have Spanish language books in the library. So for a smaller population of the prison, it was a really big issue that yeah. th- that the other prisoners were in support of. I mean, the other prisoners in solidarity were asking for these accommodations to be made for the Spanish-speaking uh, inmates. And I, I had read, Rebecca, maybe you can help me understand, that there was all there was already um, petitions being made and organi- organi- organizing yes. around improving the conditions in a sort of more peaceful, sort of methodic way, right? This had been, uh, I, I believe, for a few years. They had been talking about these issues that were uh, happening inside the uh, inside the prison, but um, obviously not much had been done. And I and I think there was even a um, what is it when you stop eating? Oh, a hunger strike. A hunger strike. Oh, I, I think you're right. Yes, yes. I think there had been one uh, maybe a year earlier. Now, let's put some of the big big dogs. Up on the board. Okay. Yeah. New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller. Yuck. <laughs> Yuck. <laughs> You're not allowed to delete that. You have to keep it. <laughs> I mean, whatever. I mean, he's okay. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> this is a documentary filmmaker, Stanley Nelson, explains it was really a law enforcement riot. Over 500 law enforcement agents, state troopers, and ex-prison guards stormed the prison with rifles, shotguns, and they were up on the catwalks, and uh, first tear gas was shot down on the prisoners. They were just firing down randomly at the prisoners. Again, I want to reiterate that they could see what they were doing. So they could Sorry, they couldn't see what they were doing, so they just fired over and over again. There's one New York State surveillance tape of the riot, and and it's unbelievable how long they were firing. It's about nine minutes of straight shooting down into the yard. That's wild. 
Okay. In response to criticism in uh, November 1971, Governor Rockefeller established the New York State Special Commission on Attica. Known as the McKay Commission, the commission was directed to investigate the circumstances leading up to, during, and following the events at Attica. The commission's report, published a year after the riot, was critical of Rockefeller. The Department of Corrections and New York State Police for their handling of the prison retake and for the neglig- for their negligence in protecting inmates from repri- uh, reprisal after the riot. So the <laughs> uh, the commission that uh, the governor uh, established was like yeah. pointed right hey, pointed you. the finger right back at him. <laughs> Which is kind of the risk of a commission, you know? I mean, I think when you get uh, outside investigators to look into your actions, no matter what level of government you're at, you have to, you know, part of that agreement is we will listen to what you say. And oftentimes we hear this happening where, uh, you know, a panel will be brought together to give feedback on some sort of an issue. And if the people who... Uh, you know, commission that panel don't like the answer. They just try to ignore it Mm. or underplay the significance of the findings. Classic. Don't, um, don't ask for what you don't want to know. Is that what that is? (laughs) Yeah, uh, sure. Pretend to ask. (laughs) Ignore the answers. And everything will be fine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> Change your mm-hmm. phone number, leave town. <laughs> Move to Garrison. Move to the country. <laughs> we got a lot we got a lot of escapees up here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I bet. <laughs> now, I also want to put the press up on the board. They were a huge contributors uh to this. This is uh Robert Douglas, counsel and later secretary of governor uh Nelson A. Rockefeller said Quote, the press kind of fed on it and it and turned what I think today might have been regarded as a reasonably successful effort to put down a terrible prison riot into a bit of a nightmare for the governor. You can sense my tone there. Mm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The standoff in the prison became a nationally televised drama as reporters and TV cameras were allowed inside the prison yard because of the press. Stories were spun. Stanley Nelson says, quote, the original report was that the hostages had their throats cut. And part of the reason why that was thought at first was because prisoners brought the guards into the yard and put knives to their throat, homemade knives to their throat. It was just a threat. When the attack actually happened, it was found out the next day that no guards had gotten their throats slit at all. And the 10 guards that were killed were all killed by gunfire. I think the medical examiner actually said the the truth the next day but what happened was that the first report on the news was that they had their throats slit so that was believed and the retraction is not heard in the same way as the first statement so to this day some people still believe that the hostages throats throats were slit although no hostages throats were slit at all right one thing that is really important it's it's really important to get things right the first time because like this quote says uh, retractions are not heard the same. No one reads the retractions or the corrections. Mm-hmm. They print them in a different part of the newspaper for mm. that very reason. Also, I think yeah. a lot of a lots of times, you know, the press doesn't necessarily want to admit when they've made a mistake that was influenced by their own biases as mm. people, you know, as as right humans, um, or based on 
bad information from bad sources. I think something, you know, about the just the entire the language surrounding the event as well, which remains to this day, is we talk about it as, um, you know, we talk about it as a riot, or we talk about it as the uprising or something like that. And Mm. what we don't, we don't really frame it in the sense of it being the squashing of a protest. I mean, it was a riot because what began as a protest became a uh, problem for the prison itself. I mean, I don't want to, you know, I'm speaking of this very generally, but what was pursued as an opportunity to sort of negotiate and talk about the lives of the prisoners who were being held there was misinterpreted as this um, act of violence or this attempt Mm -hmm. for violence. When ultimately, you know, that we know that the injuries and deaths that occurred were not at the hands of the uh, of the protesters. It was at the hands of the guards. And what they were protesting was the violence that they were subjected to day Mm -hmm. in, day out by the guards themselves. I think that's an interesting point to just the semantics of it, that, you know, depending on who's speaking and what their agenda is, and we see this still today, play out in media all the time, whether they're just peaceful protesters or they're violent, you know, rioters, and there's always some kind of bent on it and how um, it is interesting, Sean, your point to how we still today, like you fall into the semantics of riot or uprising, mm-hmm. which right. kind of robs the movement of like the actual like humanity. I and guess. even now, 50, whatever, 52 years later, I was looking on this, this sort of niche academic website, Wikipedia, and <laughs> the way that they, you I'll know, you, it yeah, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's for nerds, <laughs> um, but they have this sort of format on Wikipedia whenever they're talking about war, like literal wars, where they have a sort of list of like the two armies and like the belligerents and like the attackers and the aggressors. And they use this template when talking about the Attica uh, prison uprising. They don't use this to talk about like the slum- September 11th attacks. They don't use mm. it really in any of these other sort of world events wherein there are casualties. But for some reason, they use it to talk uh. about this event as if it is, you know, that level of almost almost as if it was that organized that mm-hmm. the state police sort force and the state um, you know, Department of Prisons were an army that was protecting themselves against an an attacking army. Right. right. I think that's important. And and I think that's what a lot of the prisoners tried to make clear. The the idea that this was not planned. This yeah. was a spur of the moment. It was it, not planned. And one of the um attorneys who represented uh the prisoners um talked about it as it was at, it was a riot and then it quickly became um i think the term she used was a um revolution or something mm-hmm. like that it was a riot and then it became sort of a let's let's organize and it's sort of an organized protest like sean said i think mm-hmm. well uh, th- maybe let, let's put these two things up on the board and i think this is right on topic first let's put the faulty gate up on the board okay mm-hmm this is as much an architecture problem as a (laughs) oh yeah as as a human rights problem 
<laughs> um, documentarian uh, Stanley Nelson explains, quote, Attica was divided into four sections and the hallways met at a place called Times Square. Unlike the image of Times Square for those living in freedom, the, this Times Square was like the center hub of the prison. And when the prisoners started to rebel, rebel and riot, they started banging on the gate. And one of the gates had a faulty weld in the gate and the gate came down and broke. And the prisoners seized the guards there at Times Square. And so then the prisoners controlled the prison and it happened really quickly. In some ways, it was really because of this faulty welding job that was done, we think, from when the prison was first built. So if the prison gate was in better condition, would this have led to the, ta to the takeover to begin with? Right. Right. Yeah. I, and I mean, it was the gate itself, but also just the conditions of the prison. I mean, mm -hmm. I think you can extrapolate that out more to the building itself. It was not designed to house that many prisoners. And the way that they were held was had a sort of infuriating inhumanity to it. For sure. And actually, Rebecca, you know, you asked the question about where it is located in New York. And mm -hmm. that also is pretty significant in this sort of, I, I mean, maybe this is separate from this prison itself, but speaking more to our inhumanity towards prisoners, it is located in like the nether regions of upstate New York. The majority of the population of the prisoners were coming from New York City and they were being sent to this prison that was hours and hours away inaccessible to their families mm. and uh it, and so far removed from the community that they were used to in this really um you know sort of rural part of up western new york and from what i understand none of the people of color in that community were outside of prison walls right it, it was an all white community outside of that it is and you know and and that i think speaks to uh, i think there's a perspective that we need to keep as well which is this did happen in 1971 so if you're a 40 year old corrections officer working at this prison living in western new york you grew up in a very different mm. period in american history than the four of us did who you know all of us in our mm -hmm. mid-20s like we grew up in a totally <laughs> yes. different kind of world <laughs> and you know so not that we should um not that we should give anybody a pass on their own prejudices and biases but you do have to kind of at least take that into consideration that if you're living in like rural upstate new york and you're working in a very um uh, homogenous community and yeah, the only black people you ever see are the people who live in right. the prison that you work at. It's going it it would be impossible for that not to affect your um psyche in that mm -hmm. type of setting. I mean, you, yeah, you would have been born in what the, before the Civil Rights Act, you would have been born in like the 30s or early 40s. Mm -hmm. Totally. Now, this ties into this. Let's put the racially intolerant up on the board. Yeah, uh, totally. <laughs> We are Attica, interviews with prisoners from Attica. Uh, this is an article where Roz Payne 60s archive said, 
Puerto Rican and African-American prisoners made up a majority of the Attica prison population, and they received especially harsh and discriminatory treatments such as the lowest paying jobs, racial harassment and violence from the primary white guards. Emboldened by the spirit of the black power movement and radical ideology, some inmates saw themselves as political prisoners. Additionally, as in many American prisons, racial disparities existed at Attica. Within the prison population, 54% of the incarcerated men were African-American, 9% Puerto Rican, and 37% white. All of the guards, or all but one of the guards, depending on the source, were white. Guards often threw out letters written in Spanish, sent uh, to or from Puerto Rican prisoners and relegated black prisoners to the lowest paid jobs and subjected them to regular racial harassment. So racism, you're going up there. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I read that there was one um, one Spanish speaking guard who wasn't allowed to speak to the inmates in Spanish. Mm. (laughs) Really? Yeah. (laughs) Cool. That's awesome. Um, it's, now, yeah, go I on. Just, it's just like you hear all this, the, the this horrible conditions and this treatment, and then you go back to what Sean was saying, which is like, we in America agree that prisons are meant to be like a place where you're rehabilitated. And nothing about that sounds like Mm-mm. in any way an effective or meaningful approach to rehabilitation. It feels so punitive and i mean listen i don't mean to oversimplify it like there are some very scary people in prisons um and it's nuanced but it seems like the default is just to um this very aggressive um violent uh you know kind of bullish way of get in line and yeah, and not you everyone know, fits that. You know, like you said, there were people in there for minor offenses. Like that's it's it's sort of like planning. It's it's um, it's sort of making all of your plans based on like the kind of worst case scenario, right. for lack of a better term, or the most mm-hmm. extreme case. So yes, while you very well could have had you know very violent offenders who were being housed in this prison to sort of design the entire system to accommodate them you're you're leaving such a huge spectrum of people you know sort of without resources or without opportunities because of the fear of the sort of small group of people and something we've slightly touched on but i think is important to reiterate is that this was a maximum security prison made for probably the worst offenders mm-hmm. right but because there were so many um uh, I, I don't know what you call them, uh, lighter offenders. Is that the term? <laughs> um, with 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 uh, shorter sentences, shorter sentences and less violent crimes. Right. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, the way we just give a, give give out these sentences. Right. Or the, at least that they were giving at the time so quickly and freely. Um, and easily mm-hmm. caused an overflow where all, right. all of a sudden these people are being sent to these maximum security prisons and the the where where the the main focus is not to to um rehabilitate right and if you have no opportunity to demonstrate 
how you have been rehabilitated if you have no um right. you know opportunities for meaningful work or opportunities for education then how do you get yourself out of this sort of hole mm-hmm. it's sort of literally this catch 22 of like again like how do you how do you prove to any of these people supervising you that you are worthy of compassionate release or uh, an early release or a or any signs that you are you know i mean i don't want to say heels but you know what i mean any sure. signs yeah. that you are that you've kind of paid your debt to society um when you're in a situation where you're just surrounded by inhumanity and mm. it's sort of like it's it's sort of you know, it's like structural inhumanity is mm. what it is. It's sanctioned inhumanity. Let's put that on the board. Yeah, structural I want to put inhumanity. that up. And it's really hard then to break out of that, to break out of those constraints, you know? And let's well, let's put up the task force because they're the ones, I guess, upholding this structural inhumanity, right? Um, Robert Douglas states... And then when it turned out that most of the deaths had occurred not at the hands of the inmates, but ricochet fire, there was a sudden 180 degree shift. And all of a sudden, the police had used excessive power. They stripped the inmates down before they let them back into their cells, which they had to do anyway, because a lot of them had concealed weapons. There wasn't enough medical care available instantly. At 7.30 p.m. on September 17, the radical left militant organization, the Weather Underground, launched a retaliatory attack on the New York Department of of Corrections, exploding a bomb near Oswald's office. The communique accompanying the attack called the prison system an example of how society run by white racists maintains its control, with white supremacy being the main question white people have to face. Retaliation against inmates by prison authorities was pervasive, including beatings, torture, burning, and sexual abuse. Evidence suggests Barkley initially surrendered along with other prisoners, but that officers searched uh, him out, then shot him in the back. Uh, At 9.46 a.m. on Monday, September 13, 1971, tear gas was dropped into the yard and hundreds of New York State Police troopers Bureau of uh, Criminal Investigation personnel, deputy sheriffs, park police, and correctional officers opened fire into the smoke. Among the weapons used by the troopers were shotguns loaded with buckshot pellets, which led to wounding and killing of hostages and inmates who were not resisting. Additionally, some of the guns utilized by law enforcement used unjacketed bullets, a kind of ammunition that causes such enormous damage to human flesh that it was banned by the Geneva Conventions. Mm. Mm. Correctional officers from Attica were allowed to participate, a decision later called inexcusable by the commission established by Rockefeller to study the riot and the aftermath. Yep. <laughs> right. And I mean, you're talking about people in a in a physically confined environment where there there is nowhere for there to run right. and while they could potentially have sort of rudimentary weapons you're not these aren't people who you're who you're chasing down a public street who might be armed they're it's fish in a barrel and, and they um, have hostages who they are telling you are well and they're they've been like communicating and negotiating with, with like very 
normal, you know, they're not like, we want, it's not anything ridiculous. Right. So it's like Mm -hmm. the, I don't know, the nerve, the audacity, just like open fire, knowing full well that you could just kill your, you know, fellow police officers who are in there and not care for any, I mean, any life, not that it's only their life that matters, but like just the disregard just seems really. Mm -hmm. In terms of the negotiation, um, it seems like there was a turning point when one of the officers who had been injured in the initial uh, overtake, you know, in the initial chaos, um, eventually uh, did did uh, die mm-hmm. from his injuries, and then the question of amnesty, yep. you know, because the, the that was the one thing that the prisoners didn't want to budge on. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't. Uh, we want amnesty after this is all over. And and just to clarify, amnesty from the actions yes. that happened at the prison regarding the the riots, not right. amnesty not from their for, sentence from their crime. Right. Yeah, right. yeah. So uh, th- once that was kind of taken off the table, because the you know negotiating parties uh, felt like someone needed to be blamed. Here we are <laughs> mm-hmm. in a, a, a show where we talk about who's to blame, but someone needed to be blamed. And so all of a sudden, um, it felt like the communication and the negotiations were s- just slowed down. Mm. They, they were at an impasse. Mm-hmm. And again, these demands that they were uh, requesting all seem sort of reasonable in the way that you would expect people to be treated, or at least goals to work towards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And giving people amnesty for crimes that they committed in the act of having their conditions improved seems like sort of the easiest thing to do. They're right. already serving sentences. Why would you want to, why would you want to contribute to your over uh, populated prison <laughs> by trying right. these people for additional crimes? Mm. Okay, so we're running out of time. We have to make a decision here. Why don't we take a quick break and then we're going to start knocking things off the board. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June too is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Alarmist. Okay, who's to blame for the Attica prison uprising? Is it general prison conditions? Too crowded slash overpopulated prison? New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller? The press? The faulty prison gate? the racially intolerant structural inhumanity or the task force. And okay. So I, I do think we need to specify here. I, I think we are trying to figure out who's to blame for, you know, the, the, the deaths I get, the, the, the amount of death that yeah. occurred. Yeah. I mean, to me, that seems to be the most horrific element of this event is the sort of the way in which um the state intervened Mm -hmm. uh that was so brutal and so extreme and killed 39 people right Mm. so so the versus why we think the uprising was necessary in the first place i guess you can go back and say it was the it was the bolt on the gate that could you know like started the <laughs> riots which led to the negotiations which led to the massacre mm-hmm. um but to me what's so egregious is the massacre i don't right. know i'm maybe jumping the gun a little bit mm-hmm. i mean, look uh, it's i i think they are they're both they go together right mm-hmm. yeah i think so, it's the whole the whole reason why we're having this discussion you know, what led to this being a moment in history that most people are aware of and what led to the, uh, I think it's what ultimately what led to the violence. Right. The I don't want to, you know, I'm, I don't think, I think we can all agree that we are not, um, we are neither blaming the uh, prisoners themselves 
or mm. blaming the um, under-resourced actions, perhaps, of mm-hmm. the corrections officers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We are blaming, we are determining the system which mm-hmm. created this entire environment. I think that's a good point. Okay, we got a process of elimination. Let's try and do this quick. Yeah. I think the press comes off the board. I think, right. yeah, I think the press was reacting to things sort of sloppily in real time, but not. Yes. But also the prisoners had no idea what the press was reporting on and and few of the guards would have. So yes. that couldn't have been a motivator. I also think the prison gate. I mean. Yeah, it, it's kind of crazy to think that none of this could have happened if it weren't for like stronger gates. I mean, clearly there were bigger pressures than them pushing right. the gate. Um, but uh, although it was, again, it was, if you think it was spurred of the moment, maybe it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for this faulty prison gate. But again, they might not have I, got I th- the control of point. the facility. If it weren't, you yeah. know, like it seems like something was pending. Like there were the, the level of, violence and even after this happened there were like revolts in prisons around the country as a result of this so it's like right, pressure right. was building and uh-huh. they just there this was like some weird twist of faith that they were able to kind of like gain control control the prison due to this faulty yeah. gate yeah i also think that we can take crowded overpopulated prison off the board because it kind of rolls into general pr- prison conditions yes yeah, agree. yeah. And I also think like structural inhumanity can for can uh, fold into the racially intolerant. Okay. I yeah, I think that it's the, but I think that it is the, it is the um, reverse of that. No, no, I think it's I, I think they are linked to each other. But I would mm-hmm. say that it is the sort of racially motivated structural inhumanity. Mm. Oh, I like that. Led to the entire sort of um uh perspective on the the prison population. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is this agreement that free people have made that anybody who is in jail or in prison or in involved in the criminal justice system has this has this underlying guilt to them and right. this underlying incivility. So we're we're taking out then I, I like that better. So let's so keep fold. it as racially motivated in structural inhumanity and we'll fold racially intolerant into that. I like that. Mm-hmm. Now we're left with four. We're le- oh I guess the general prison conditions can fold into the racially motivated structural inhumanity yeah. then. Yeah. In that case. And we're left with three. Governor Rockefeller, racially motivated structural inhumanity, and the task force who was told to do the job of, of uh, you know, taking over the uprising. And my instinct is to send Rockefeller to jail. Oof. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think you... Yeah. yeah, I think that it's the I think that it's the structural inhumanity that is the. That's what I, I'm. I'm going back and forth, right? Because I and I do think the task force is let off the hook for this. But again, the task I mean, I think, force is also. I mean, they again. This is after the fact, right? They're they're reactionary. They're following orders, right? But like they, well, no, these they aren't are the compl- consultants. 
Are, is the task force the people who did the report on it after the fact? No. No, the it's the people force... who are responsible for negotiating. Yeah, uh, yeah and the, the state troopers who actually fired. Who went right. back in the, and got control of the, the prison, yeah, right? Yeah. Which who carried to, out the massacre. Yeah. yeah. Which is like, the yes, while they, com- they um, committed the literal acts, it feels like um, it was a reaction to something that happened, you know, like, again, I think going to what we've talked about, about this, like, societal like structural understanding of what we view as a prisoner slash human versus non-human exactly and i think i would say that the only reason why the task you know the task force was responding to the orders of the governor Mm -hmm. and the only reason why they maybe would not have felt compelled to defy the wishes of the governor is because of racially motivated structural inhumanity <laughs> wow. which led them to you know not question whether these actions were right. appropriate or not right right i love a long uh perp like <laughs> it's 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 nuanced it's specific, yes um but it's also all-encompassing of perhaps yes and you know what of contemporary society <laughs> and rockefeller was born and raised into that same structural agreement right so mm-hmm. it's not to let him off the hook but he's part no, of he's that getting system. slapped let me oh, tell right. you he's for getting, sure slapped. he's getting uh, two <laughs> <laughs> okay i'm gonna call it new york governor nelson rockefeller you're getting the big slap racially motivated structural inhumanity you're going to the alarmist jail which i know should be prison should be prison. <laughs> Rehabilitation center. Rehabilitation <laughs> yes, center. That's right. Oh. And day spa. <laughs> um, can I say one nice thing about Nelson Rockefeller? Okay. He was a big <laughs> advocate for contemporary art. There is a wonderful collection of art that he's donated to the state of New York. If you go to Albany, you can visit it. And it was one of the things that led to my understanding of the importance of art as a young child. Hmm. Wow. wow. Okay. So, I mean, so he, he did some nice things for some people. They can't all be gems, <laughs> but that is one thing that I like about them. <laughs> well, Sean, thank you so much for uh, joining us today and helping us get to this very uh, complicated um, and uh, sad and continuing tragedy. It was my pleasure and my, my tragedy. It was my my pleasure and my sadness to be a part. In the aftermath, in the hours, weeks, and months following the horrific incident, troopers and officers brutally retaliated against the prisoners. Several protests and riots occurred in prisons across the United States following the initial uprising. As a result of the riot, modest prison reform was issued, including a grievance procedure and a call for regular communication between prison authorities and representatives. Lawyers successfully defended the inmates who were indicted for the riot, and 25 years later, they obtained $8 million from the state for some of the survivors and the families of the dead. Similarly, the state of New York agreed to a $12 million settlement with the families of slain prison employees. Attica Prison was brought back in the news in 2011 when the beating of 29-year-old George Williams was brought to light. 
It was the first time in state history that staff had been indicted for a non-sexual assault of a person in custody. Three staff members pleaded guilty to misdemeanor misconduct to avoid prison time and were forced to resign, but were allowed to keep their pensions. Visit our website and let us know who you think is to blame at www.thealarmistpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram at The Alarmist Podcast and on Twitter at Alarmist The. You can also send us your thoughts via email to thealarmistpodcast at gmail.com. Today's episode was produced and engineered by... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Clayton Early, with fact-checking by Chris Smith, and editing by Molly Hockey. Thank you to our associate producer and researcher, Alex Paul. The Alarmist is executive produced by Rebecca Delgado-Smith and the Erios Network. Tune in next week. We'll be discussing capitalism. Erios. Powered by ACAST.